Welcome to Understanding VC. I am your host Rahul. Understanding VC is a show where I talk to venture capitalists to learn how they work. For a change, today my guest is a serial media entrepreneur Fred Cyber. Fred is one of the leading independent animation producers and has done some amazing things in his career. He was the first creative director of MTV, the last president of Hanna Barbera Cartoons, and the founder of Frederator Studios and Next New Networks, which was acquired by YouTube. He was responsible for some of my favorite cartoons growing up like Dexter's Lab and Pop of Girls and he was also the first investor in Tumblr. In fact, I had a brief chat with David Cobb, the founder of Tumblr many years back, and when I told him about my startup Bloco, he suggested I get in touch with Fred, and that's what I did. Now let's talk to Fred. So hi Fred, thank you for joining me as a guest on my podcast Understanding VC. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for asking me. Let's start with your background. Like Where did you grow up? What were your interests growing up? I grew up 30 miles outside of New York City in a suburb right when the US suburbs were starting to grow in a big way. My family, my parents met in the city. I was born in New York City, but they were both pharmacists and wanted to start their own business and were more comfortable starting one from scratch rather than buying an existing one. So we moved out to the suburbs when I was probably 3 years old and I stayed there till I was 17 years old. When I was a young kid, I really loved science. Most of the people in my family, extended family were scientists and I loved that, but I also studied music as a young child and I liked all of the things that kids like. I liked to play sports, I liked to swim, I actually really liked school. so i had a good time in school yeah it all you know it was a very nice pleasant comfortable childhood i was very lucky okay so what was your like first job how how did you get started in the music business oh well those are two different questions my first job was in my parents pharmacy at the beginning because they couldn't afford babysitters and after that because my mother had grown up in her family pharmacy and uh, had spent her entire childhood there so not just me but my two younger sisters we never had outside jobs because it, we were in the family right and we had to do it so it was great in many ways because i learned a work ethic very young and it has continued throughout my life i you know for many years i thought of myself as lazy but the truth of the matter was is that in my family You know there is a saying in English do you live to work or do you work to live and yeah. in my family we live to work and I continue to do that it's why I'm still working at 69 years old so uh, how did you get started um, as a music producer well you know it's interesting because I went through my whole schooling starting you know when I was very young deciding I wanted to be a chemist I wanted to join the family business in many ways and yeah. in fact I went to college to study chemistry. But a funny thing happened which is when I was 12 years old, the world turned upside down at least in my world because the Beatles came to America. And nice. they not only changed culturally how we listen to everything and what we loved, but they changed how to go about life in many ways. Right? They had the funny haircuts that were against convention and tradition, right? Yeah. eventually they started dressing against you know a tradition and convention and for those of us who were in my age group we looked at them as guides you know to life 
And in many ways, some, some good, some bad, by the way, you know, but what it did for me is it took this nascent interest I'd had in playing music when I was a child. And like almost everybody else in my generation, just the same way that right now everyone has an Instagram account in, in my teenhood, everyone had a guitar and a band. And I had, (laughs) I had a succession of bands. I loved having my pop band. We didn't write our own songs and, you know, we played other people's songs, but I had a great time. But along the way that I realized that I liked the things around the band as much as the band itself. So I loved the equipment that we had and that we had to buy the amplifiers and the guitars and the organs and the drum sets. And I liked the microphones and the public address systems, you know, the sound system that we had. And I loved records. And the idea of being involved in records and recording was just the most exciting thing to me. In fact, in one of my bands, we entered a radio contest, you know, who was the best band. And they brought us to one of the biggest recording studios in New York City. And I just died and went to heaven. I thought that was the greatest thing in the world. So when I got to college, six weeks into my chemistry studies, I looked at my lab mate and said, you know, I like the Beatles more than this. And I walked out of class. I walked into my college radio station and I almost never left. In fact, to this day, I haven't graduated from college because I spent so much time at the radio station. And one of the things that was great about New York City at that particular moment in time is that it had been the center of jazz musicians already for 30 or 40 years. It continued to be while I was there. And because jazz was no longer popular music, so many of the jazz musicians came and visited my college radio station because we played a lot of jazz. And many of them came with their instruments and wanted to perform. And I volunteered to be the person to set up their microphones and mix their session. And for the next four or five years, I just recorded every musician who came into my college station. Yeah. And one day, another friend of mine who was a musician but was running a record store said, you know, I really would like to make some records. I'm going to try and get a record deal. And I very entrepreneurially and arrogantly said, why do you need to go to a record company? Why don't we just set up our own company? Yeah. <laughs> so we, we set up a little record company. We knew nothing about making records. There was no internet in those days, and there were no magazines about making records. But we, you know, little by little, we found out what we needed to do. And as it turned out, my, my partner had a friend who wanted to put up the money to make the first record. My partner also had been a bass guitar player with an older, famous Black American blues musician. And we had recorded that musician for one of my radio shows. And so now we had a tape of a famous blues musician. He had just passed away. He was in his 70s. We were starting a record company, and we were able to make a record with a well-known musician from around the world right away. And I got to put my name on the record. And that was just the greatest thing in the world. And for the next four or five years, we made about a half dozen records. They were all good, in my opinion. I have kept them, I've kept them in print over the years now in digitally in print, and they're all still available out in the world and people listen to them and seem to like them, which is great. 
However, I wasn't getting paid anything to do this. In fact, we were losing money because I didn't really know how to run a record business. So I started looking around for jobs that would pay me to make records. I finally found a little jazz company in New York City. I was living in New York at the time who started giving me official producing jobs. And I started producing with world-class musicians who are all 20 or 30 years older than me. They were almost all Black Americans. So culturally, we didn't have a great fit. I didn't really know all that much about jazz. But believe me, over the course of those several years, I learned a lot, not just about jazz, but about producing, which sort of set the stage for the rest of my career. Yeah. Nice. Like, how do you enter an industry where you have very little knowledge and then... (laughs) Yeah, I have an impact. Uh, Well, again, two different questions. You enter the industry by knocking on every door you can or crashing through any door that you can. In fact, the first jazz recording session I was in, there was a big sign on the door that said closed, no one allowed. (laughs) So I just walked in and I sat down like I belonged and nobody questioned me. And I got to sit through my first recording session, you know. But to make an impact, you know, there are a variety of ways. I happen to be lucky in that in those days, New York City was still one of the great world centers of recording. And even though I was involved in music that wasn't very popular, I got to be part of that community fairly quickly by always being ready to do anything that was necessary. If the garbage needed to be thrown out, I threw out the garbage. If somebody needed their instrument taken from here to there, I took their instrument from here to there. And little by little, uh, people came to trust me and give me increasingly trustworthy tasks, which was great. So uh, how did you become the creative director of MTV from uh, being a music producer? So... um, You know, at my college radio station, uh, one of the things that I really liked to do was create the promotion spots for our concerts or for our radio shows. You know, they were 60 seconds. I had creative people all around me. Somebody knew how to write the the promotion. Somebody was good at announcing. You know, I was very good at editing. And I loved making those short little spots. And... Friends who wanted to learn how to do those things would come to me and I would show them what I knew how to do. And one day a friend came and said, you know, I have a job offer at a um, a commercial radio station, but I have an audition and I don't know how to pass the audition. So he asked for my help and I gave him the help. He went and passed the audition. I said, you know, I'm really broke. I have no money. I really need freelance work. If they have any freelance work ever, please call me. So he calls me three weeks later, literally crying. He said, I hate this radio station. I hate the boss. I hate the job. You can have the job. So I went down. I did the audition. I understood why he hated the boss. The guy was crazy. But the thing that I noticed right away is, one, he was willing to give me freelance work. And more importantly, he was really smart. And at that point in my life, I was probably 24, 25 years old. I just needed to learn more. And as it turned out, this man was not happy 
unless he had someone on his staff that he could teach things to. So as crazy as he was, I like the job was the greatest job ever. In fact, that person became my lifetime mentor. Sadly, he just passed from COVID, but literally all the way through my life to this day, I never go through a work day without thinking about something I learned from this, this gentleman, this brilliant man. So one day he, (laughs) his name was Dale Pond. He eventually became famous because I eventually hired him at MTV and he did the advertising campaign called I Want My MTV, which broke MTV wide into the world. Yes. Yes. Okay. So one day, you know, I I met a lot of people in the radio business from him. And uh, one day I got a phone call from one of those radio people. And he said, you know, I've just gone into the cable TV business and I hear that maybe you'd like to work for me in cable TV. And I'm like, no. I said, I watch television. I don't make it. And he said, you know, come and meet me. Maybe, you know, you never know. So I went, we had a coffee together and I was 27 years old. He was 25 years old. And I realized something immediately, which is he was way smarter than I was. And so he, I went back to the radio station, quit my job and went to work in cable TV, which I didn't know anything about doing promotion for a channel that we had called the movie channel, which was all movies. And I was responsible for everything that wasn't a movie, everything in between the movies I had to produce. But about a month into the job, he put a memo on everyone's desk and said, the next channel we're going to start is the music channel. And I marched right into his office And I said, you know, you really need to hire me for the music channel. And he said, how come? I said, well, I know more about music than you do. And I know more about music than anybody on the floor. He said, okay, you're hired. And, you know, a few days later, I said, I was, because of my love of records, I was really interested in the record graphics and the covers because, you know, one of the great creative advances in the 1960s happened in graphic design. And it happened because of of LP covers. They were 12 inches by 12 inches. And there was all sorts, you know, whether it was Sergeant Pepper with all of the thousands of little, you know, angles on them, great photography, great illustration. I became very interested in graphic design. So I said to the boss, my boss, who's going to do the logo for this music channel? Yeah. And uh, because there was a corporate creative department. Yeah. And I said, are are they going to do it? And he goes, oh, no, they're idiots. You know that. Why don't you just do it? So All of a sudden, not only am I going to be in charge of promotion for this music channel, but I'm going to be responsible for what it looks like. The only person I knew who was graphic designer was my oldest childhood friend. I'd known him since I was four years old. And I hired his new little studio to create, you know, what has become the MTV logo. He was the first one to start thinking about the fact that it could have all different designs within it. which broke one of the great logo rules, right? You know, the logo is always supposed to be exactly the same. It's like carved out of stone in the side of a mountain or something. Frank Olinsky, who was that designer, thought, no, you know, he was an illustrator and he started illustrating all sorts of different things inside the logo. And it took some doing. Nobody liked it. It broke all the rules. But I was excited about the fact that it broke the rules because... It's not like I'm a graphic designer. It's not like I'm a television producer. I didn't know anything about anything. I just knew that 
if they wanted somebody who did things the way other people did it, they never would have hired me. Yeah. The only reason I was there is maybe that I could bring in original thinking to the table. So that was sort of the beginning of how I became the creative director at MTV and stayed there for, you know, a few years before I quit my job. And then you went into animation business. Like, why? Uh, and like, yeah, what was that story? Well, just quickly, the company that owned MTV also owned Nickelodeon. Okay. And Nickelodeon, at the time, it was a strategic marketing play for cable television. And no one cared if it succeeded or not. It's kind of like, you know, on Netflix, there's a place for kids. Yeah. But, you know, Netflix doesn't really care about kids all that much. They just strategically like it because it causes families to subscribe. So it's the same thing in cable television. And in fact, Nickelodeon was the lowest rated cable channel in America. Okay. But it was losing a lot of money. And eventually the company noticed that it was losing a lot of money. They put my MTV boss in charge of it. His name is Bob Pittman. He now is the CEO of one of the biggest radio companies in the U.S. called iHeartRadio. He was also the president of AOL when AOL was a big thing. And they said, look, you either need to fix this thing or we have to close it because it's just losing too much money. Yeah. So he called me. I had already quit my job. I was now a consultant to MTV. And he yeah. said, look, we really need help with Nickelodeon. I said, look, I, I don't know anything about kids programming. I barely know anything about television. He said, well, look, we have to fix it. So can you just figure out a way to fix it? Long story short, my partner, Alan Goodman, and I did fix it. Six months after we got involved, it became the number one network in cable television. And now I was in the kids television business. And one of the, as you know, one of the big things in kids television is animation. And as a child, I had really loved cartoons. I loved Looney Tunes. I loved the Flintstones. And when I started working on MTV, I realized that cartoons and rock and roll served a great similar purpose, but for different age groups. You know, cartoons were a little anarchistic. They were a little wild. They were exciting. They were funny, kind of like rock and roll records. So I started like looking a lot more into cartoons. And one day Nickelodeon asked me for help in figuring out how they could make their own cartoons because they were licensing them from other places, primarily from places in Europe. And I didn't really know all that much about cartoons. I had read one book about cartoons. So I started giving them a way to think about cartoons. They liked some of it. They didn't like some of it. And I just started complaining to all my friends that they weren't listening to me. And as it turned out, one of those friends was the president of Ted Turner's company. Ted had founded CNN and TBS, was about, I, without my knowing it, he was about to start a cartoon network. And my friend was in charge of it. So uh, after I complained to him so loudly about Nickelodeon not listening to me, he called me up one day and said, you know, we just bought the Hanna-Barbera cartoon studio. It's losing a lot of money. Yeah. We need help fixing it. Maybe you should come and help. And I said, well, you know, I, I've never made a cartoon. He said, yeah, but you did all these little um, animations for MTV and Nickelodeon. I said, look, those animations, we took a logo and we wiggled it a little bit. That's not the same as cartoons. There's no characters. There's no stories. He goes, look, it couldn't get any worse. 
They haven't had a hit in 10 years. So why don't you come out and see what you can do? So I thought about it for a minute. And at the time, I was 40 years old. I had been working now in television for 10, 12, 13 years. My partner and I weren't getting along. My wife and I weren't getting along. We were about to get divorced. And the idea of moving from New York City to Los Angeles, 3,000 miles away, where I could start over, made a lot of sense. In many ways, Los Angeles is a place where people reinvent themselves. And I was ready for reinvention. So I moved to Los Angeles. The first time I walked into the Hanna-Barbera cartoon studio, I was the president. And it took off from there. It was crazy. <laughs> like, this is another industry that you walked in without experience. So I saw your postcard. Uh, it says that, you know, stay original always. So is that? Yes. So what do you mean by that? As I think I said to you, when I got into television, I didn't really know anything about television. When I started my record company, I didn't know anything about making records. And now when I got into cartoons, I didn't know anything about making cartoons. So as I assessed the situation, there were two ways that I could succeed. One was I could just do another version of what everyone else was doing. But how could I do another version of what they were doing when I had no idea how to do it? So in every single case, and eventually several years later in the internet, I realized that the only thing that I could do was do something that nobody else had done. And I could take my chances. And for me, I would rather fail trying something new than fail trying to copy somebody. Copying somebody just never seemed all that interesting to me. And one of the things that the Beatles taught me early when they made the discovery that not only could they sell millions of records, but they could do great art at the same time, I realized that being special and being successful weren't mutually exclusive, that I could try and do both of them at the same time. Yes. And my work at MTV proved that out you know, to me, right? The way we broke the the logo rules and the branding rules and the way that we did a format on television that nobody had ever done in history proved to me that, yes, in fact, you can do something that's fresh and be commercially successful, which is what my desire was. So all the way through my cartoon business, what I've tried, I'm incapable of following the trend. So the result is I better find somebody who can create a new trend. The success rate is about the same. It's terrible. You know, I have to look at a thousand ideas to find one that works. Yeah. But, you know, what else are you going to do all day? You know, like the, the idea of talking to new people every day, just the same way that you and I met several years ago with your idea, which was a fresh idea, a new idea. Maybe it wasn't the right idea for that exact moment. It doesn't matter. Like trying to do new things strikes me as an exciting way, not just to go through work, but to go through life. I think it keeps you younger, longer, and it keeps you excited every day to go to work. So, I mean, you've mentioned this. uh, David Carp was an intern at your uh, Frederator Studios uh, at the age of 14. So could you please share uh, the Tumblr story and then why you invested in Tumblr? Sure. So the thing you need to know is that David's mother was the science teacher of my children when they were very young. And we became friendly with her as one of our favorite teachers. And one day she said to me, are there computers at your office? 
I said, yeah, we, you know, I, my partner at the time was an AOL engineer, a computer engineer. And I said, yeah, we, we have computers and we have people who know how to build them, which was not me. He said, do you think my son could come and visit? His school doesn't really have too much in computers. He's really interested in computers. I said, sure. So he came in. I put him in the room with one of our engineers and he stayed there all day. He had the greatest time. And he, you know, he came to my office at the end of the day. His eyes were wide open. He was really excited. He told me he had a great time. I said, David, why don't you come back any day you feel like it? He's like, really? So every day after school, he would come in and he would work with the computer engineers. I, I have no idea what they were doing. So one day he comes to me and he goes, you know, I can come in all day from now on every day. I said, really? What happened? He goes, oh, I'm leaving school and I'm doing homeschooling. And I thought this was very unusual because his mother was a school teacher. He said, oh, no, no, you know, it was her idea. I said, really? He goes, well, you know, I want to go to MIT. I said, yeah. He goes, so I've done some research. 2% of all applicants get into MIT, but 33% of all non-religious homeschool applicants get into MIT. And I thought to myself, this is a 14-year-old. Yeah. That's really smart. I said, David, you can come in anytime you want. And for the next two years, he was our intern. We helped him to get his first job. And we stayed in touch over the years. So uh, one day he calls me up and he said, you know, my the, com- the startup I was at just sold and made a lot of money. And I had some stock. So now I have some money. He said, do you have a desk that I could rent from you? I said, sure. How come? He said, well, you know, I've been working in my bedroom all this time and I just want to go somewhere else. Yeah. So I said, sure, you know, come on in. We, I had extra desks. I always keep extra desks in my office because one, I always have friends that need a desk. And two, the more different people you bring into your field of vision, the more different kinds of things can happen that are exciting and make the day worth it. Yeah. So uh, David came in, he started a little consulting company. He was 19 years old at this time. Yeah. And so he consulted with my internet startup that I had and other people. And one day he said, come over to my desk. And he started showing me. So this is in 2005, maybe yeah, 2005. And, you know, blogging had become a very big deal at that moment in time. It had been growing for four or five years and it had really exploded. And he said, you know, I think there's something that could be better than blogging. They call it tumble logging. And he showed me a tumble log on his computer and he explained the whole thing to me. And I said, I have no idea what you're talking about, David. And I went back to my desk and he said, you know, I'm thinking of building something around this tumble logging thing. And I said, go with it. You know, God bless you. You know, what, what was I going to say? I had no idea what he was talking about. And over the next few months, he said to me, you know, I need to hire someone. Can you help me figure out how to hire someone? Again, he was 19. He'd had a couple of small jobs in his life. So we talked through how to hire someone and he interviewed a bunch of people. He finally found a candidate. He said, do you think you could talk to him too? I said, sure, I'll be glad to talk to him. He hired his chief engineer, Marco Arment, and they started working on this tumble logging thing that he had that he eventually called Tumblr. So he was explaining it to me a long time. I still had no idea what was what. And he said, I think I'm going to launch Tumblr next week. I said, great. That's fantastic. So he launches it. I still don't know exactly what it is. And at the time, the publication that was most interested in startups, because we were really at the 
you know, we were in startup mania in 2006, around that period of time, was TechCrunch. And TechCrunch, the first day that Tumblr launched, wrote a giant article about Tumblr. And before you know it, David is getting phone calls from Google wants to buy Tumblr. And people start calling me and said, was that the kid that you introduced me to in your office? I said, yeah. He goes, could you introduce me again? And all of a sudden, venture capitalists came in that I knew and said, please introduce me to David. And one of them offered him a big deal. And he was very uncomfortable with the deal because it was a typical venture capital deal where they would take 40% of his company and, you know, he was scared of it. He was, again, he was 19, 20 years old. And so I said, look, I have another friend who is a smart guy and might have a better way for you to organize yourself. So we introduced him, a guy named John Borthwick runs a company called Betaworks. And we introduced him to John and John came up with a new plan that was more what we now call angel investing, much smaller amount of money, giving away much fewer points in the company. And they were going to raise a few hundred thousand dollars. And I said, look, I'll put in, you know, some money. It was a small, you know, small, it was an angel amount, you know, $25,000. And I went to my wife and I said, you know, none of these investments ever work out. But if, if we can make four times our money, we'll make more money than we've ever made on any investment. And needless to say, we made a lot more than four times. And David asked me to be on the board. I was the only person on the board that he actually knew. Yeah. You know, the other people were the two venture people who put in the bulk of the money, plus John Borthwick, who, you know, put together the plan to begin with. But I was the only one that he had a regular relationship with. And Tumblr was off and running. So, so you were a board member at Tumblr. So I have a question regarding board meetings. So sure. uh, as a founder, how do you make sure that you can run effective uh, board meetings? Well, you know, I will tell you that David ran a much more effective board meeting than I did at my own company. Remember, when I raised my venture money, I was in my 50s and I had spent my life working with corporations. And, you know, when you work for a corporation or work with a corporation, they have the biggest checkbook and you're always listening to them. So when when my venture investors would talk, I would actually pay attention to what they had to say and I would try and make them happy. David, he would run his board meeting very simply. He didn't have a lot of numbers. He didn't have a lot of slides. He had a few slides with one word each on them. And when the board would say, when are you going to increase your staff? He would go, not yet. For the first 18 months, Tumblr was two people, David and Marco. And the board kept trying to make it bigger because what the board is interested, what the investors are interested in is how fast can you grow and how can they sell quickly to make a lot of money back? Yeah. Now, the other board members were great. They were wonderful people. But- They had a different agenda than David did. David's agenda was to get the product exactly right because he knew when he got it exactly right, it would grow like crazy. Yeah. And so for a year and a half, he kept slowly, every board meeting, his active user base would go up, but slightly, but it never did not go up. Yeah. And one day I remember going to a board meeting and before David got there, one of the VCs said, 
you know, I feel like what we're doing is funding David's hobby because he just refused to do what they told him to do and had a plan and a vision for what was the best way to grow Tumblr. And sure enough, about a year and a half of steady growth and product differentiation, all of a sudden, one month, it was what they call the hockey stick. And his active users went crazy. So to me, the, the difference between what I did in the board meeting versus what the venture people did is I had been a business operator and none of them had been. They were always professional investors. And so I was a little bit more focused on, well, what are you actually doing? Yeah. Rather than how fast are you growing? How like the fact that he was getting more active users every month to me was a good sign. And I would ask for explanations for what did they do with the product? Why did, did he think that this feature versus that feature helped grow the product or not? How did he look at a new product feature? Yeah. Why did not he, one of the things that happened that was very instructive to me was that when he would launch a new feature, he would, he and Marco would tell me about it. And if I didn't understand it, I would go back to them and go, can you tell me exactly how does this feature work so I can use it better? And they would tell me, I go, why don't you explain that to your users? And they would just roll their eyes at me and walk away. And one of the things that I realized is that in the early days, they really understood who their users were. And they trusted their users to understand whether this feature or that feature was really useful to their use of Tumblr. And if the feature did not catch on, it was because these really smart early adopters didn't see the usage of it. Whereas I was an old man already trying to get explanations for everything because I didn't know how to figure out whether it was useful or not. I was a, like, I was a different audience for it. And what David did is instead of trusting just his board members, he trusted his users most, his consumers most. And that if he kept his eye on that consumer, that was going to be a lot more useful to the growth of Tumblr than doing what we told him to do. Definitely the way to go. (laughs) Exactly. He turned out to be exactly right. So another thing that you've said is find talented people who are worth supporting and get out of their way. So how do you spot, nurture, and mentor talent? So one of the things I learned in interviewing potential employees is that in order to for me to understand who that potential employee had to be, I had to be a very consistent interviewer. So one of the things I learned over the years is that I had a series of questions that I asked, and I always asked exactly the same questions to everyone in exactly the same order. Because what I found out is between question number three and question number four, that a human reaction would be very similar so that if someone I was interviewing had a different kind of answer for it, I paid attention in a different way. Whereas if I had asked different questions in every interview, I I wouldn't be able to have any baseline for who they were in relationship to me. Yeah. When I started having to search for creative people in the animation business, I decided that I needed a very similar template where every single person who would come in to show me something had to work within that template some way or other. So I found that the majority of what I've done over the years has been 
making short films that would effectively be pilots for whatever series I hope to make. Yeah. So I had a very simple template, which is I want to know not what the idea of the short film is. Show me the actual short film you're going to make in storyboard form. And it shouldn't be a full what we call production board. It should be a simple board that showed me the entire story, how the characters acted and what they said. And I didn't want you to send me the pitch in a PDF. I wanted you to pitch it in person, right? Where you put the board up on the wall and then you walk me through what you're going to do. Now, the reason I did that is really simple. If you go back to my music life, if Raul, you, you wrote a song and you said yeah. to me, this is the greatest love song ever. I go, gee, that's really great. Can you sing me the song? I don't want to hear about the idea of the song. I want to hear the yeah. song. And it was the same thing with the film. I didn't want to hear about the idea of the film. I didn't want to hear about those characters yet. Just show me what you really want to do. So over the years, I have literally seen probably 10 or 20,000 pitches for short films. I've made 250 short films out of those thousands of pitches. And while I'm not an expert at cartoons by any means... I have learned over the years that the best short films that we make, the great characters, are a direct reflection of that creator. And that the way they pitch it, the way they voice it, the way they tell me the story along the way, tells me a lot about what is going to be the energy of that film. What is going to be the speed of that film? How funny or not funny is it going to be? Because I mainly make comedies, not entirely, but mainly do that. Yeah. And at the, at the end of that pitch... Is there a character that I fall in love with? Because in the end, when we go and watch a film, whether it is a drama or a comedy, what we walk away with is, gee, that was a great character. We, not, might, we might not be conscious about it. It might be unconscious. But, you know, the first time I saw a Bugs Bunny cartoon, I loved Bugs Bunny. The first time I saw a Flintstones cartoon, I loved Fred Flintstone, right? The first time I heard a Beatles record, I was in love with the record, yeah. right? That, that's how we are as human beings. So by going through this pitch process in a very, the pitches themselves weren't regimented, but the process was very regimented. I yeah. could get the first sense of who this person was that I had to work with. Then the next piece would be, we make the film. Now we're together for three, four, five months in the making of the film. Yeah. And we can find out, can we stand each other? Right? Do we like being in the same room? Yeah. Because if it turns out to be successful, you're going to be in the room together for years. In fact, the first series I did as an independent producer, I'm still working with that gentleman, and we're still making new versions of that series from 25 years ago. Right. <laughs> so if we can't stand each other, that's going to be very difficult. Yeah. Right. And yeah. then at the end, you see the film itself. Maybe you like somebody a lot and the film comes out that you thought was going to be great and it's good. They're always good, but they're not necessarily good enough. So we have this, I have this very similar kind of process that I've been doing now for almost 30 years. And at the end of that, hopefully we've zeroed in on things. Not only do I think that they can succeed, but they can succeed with me in the room rather than with someone else in the room. Yeah. My guess is not every filmmaker that I've worked with would do equally well anywhere. Maybe, well, who knows? But one of the things that I have learned for myself 
is that process works for me and for the various television and streaming partners that we have. Yeah. So I'm pretty sure, like after hearing you explain your process, that you definitely make a successful VC. You should try. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I have a a question regarding uh, venture capitalists. Like, what are some of the toughest questions that a VC might ask when you're trying to raise uh, funds for your business? Well, you know, again, they're trying to assess how quickly they can make their money back. And how much extra money can they make in addition to what they invested? So the worst questions are always about how fast can you grow? Why will people like this? You know, for me, the best questions were, one, questions about me, right? Like, because in many ways, just like I said that I'm I'm looking for a film that I'm making, I'm looking for that person. The best venture people that I've worked with are looking for me as a person because they're going into business with me. And in fact, I will tell you, I I started one venture-backed company in the video space called Next New Networks. And I started it, but I never really worked there full-time because I also had my production company on the side. And we hired other people to be the leaders. And after a few years, it wasn't working. And so the lead VC called me up and said, can you come to the office? I I really need to talk to you. And he said, very frankly, you know, we invested in this company because of you and you're not there. Do you think you could come and be the CEO of the company? I said, you know, I don't think I'm a really good CEO, you know, because of this, that and the other thing. And he said, look, Fred, we invested in you. So either you come and be CEO or we're going to have to close the company. And I said, well, okay, look, but at this point in the company's history, I think the best thing to do is to sell the company. So I'd be happy to come in and be CEO as long as we understood that we were going to be on a path to selling right away. And they said, that's okay with us. And in fact, that's what happened. Yeah, we sold it to YouTube, right? We sold it to Google, yeah, to YouTube and Google, which which was great. It was a great outcome for that company. And by the way, for all of my coworkers, because they all got to work at YouTube, they became major contributors to the growth of YouTube. One of those people is now the head of TikTok in the US. One of those people is still working at YouTube, running their innovation laboratory, and all the others have succeeded, you know, fantastically. So it worked out great for all of us, right? And, And I became one of the leaders in the early era of streaming video. But I think that ultimately what I have found is if the venture capitalist is only interested in the product and not in the person creating the product, it's not going to be a good match. So um, now the like people talk about creator economy a lot. And yeah. there is like Substack and there's like Patreon and so many things going on. So specific to animation, what is stopping an, uh, like an independent animator from starting a really successful series? Like- well, you know, I've thought about this a bit since you, you, know, you asked me about it um, earlier in our pre-interview in, in uh, email. And I realized that the definition of success has changed dramatically in the modern world, right? When I was growing up, there were only two channels of television across most of America. And so success was, were you on one of those two channels? Because each of those channels had 90% of America watching it in the course of a week, 
right? So if your show got onto one of those two networks, you succeeded. Yeah. When cable television exploded in the United States, now we had between 100 and 500 channels. And there were some channels that were bigger than the others. But the way you would define success is, do the people who watch a particular channel watch what you do? You didn't care if anyone else did. So for instance, MTV got into the animation business by doing Beavis and Butthead. The rating for Beavis and Butthead compared to the ratings for The Simpsons was tiny, but everybody who watched MTV loved it. That was successful, even though it was on a ratings basis smaller than The Simpsons. Now, YouTube alone has 31 million channels. So success is a moving target. Succeeding on on your YouTube channel succeeding on Cartoon Network, succeeding on Netflix, those are all different levels of success. And there are many animators who have created wildly successful series in the YouTube space and are very happy. I have two friends up in Toronto who do a channel of songs for preschool people, children under six. Yeah, They make more money every year than I do, and no one else even knows they exist. The only people who know they exist are parents of children who are from one to five years old. I have shows on Netflix and they do better than I do. But I consider ourselves wildly successful because the audience that watches our shows on Netflix not only watches them and loves them, but wants more of them. And so we get to make more of them. Yeah. So I think that not unlike music um, success in the music world, you know, the... An artist who is successful in India or in Singapore, I I have no idea that they exist. But they don't care that I don't know that they exist because they have found a market that works for them and they get a lot of applause from that market. So they don't care that I'm not clapping. And so so I think it depends on the ambition of the filmmaker. Do they want the whole world applauding for them or do they want this specific audience yeah. So I'll give you an example. I started a channel on YouTube called Cartoon Hangover. Yeah. And we had a show on there called The Bravest Warriors. And it did really, really well. And I would go around to various colleges mainly and speak. And inevitably, the question would be, so when is Bravest Warriors going to be on television? I don't know. To me, it's already on television. YouTube is television. And it has a loyal audience that grows every week, every month, every year. I'm very happy with that success, right? I don't care if it goes on Cartoon Network or on Nickelodeon. So I think all of this is dependent on who that filmmaker is and what they're looking for out of the world. There's a very successful television uh, YouTube channel. I've known the creator for several years, five, I just saw a picture of him on my photo page that was from 2014. And lately, over the last uh, month or so, He's been writing me emails every two days because he has a new series and now he wants it to be on Netflix. And is he doing the right things to get the show on Netflix? Yeah. Now, I don't know. I mean, I'll, I'll give him my opinion, but his ambition has changed. He's no longer happy with the 3 million people a month who watches animations on YouTube. He believes that having his his new cartoon on Netflix spreading around the world is a bigger level of success for him. He'll be very happy. Yeah. So 
I guess there's a huge opportunity in the long tail where you can just build. There's a concept of thousand fans, right? Like you just yes. need thousand fans who are ready to buy anything from you. Exactly. And then you can still make a, a well, good. Well, in the world that we're in, fewer people watch anything. Yeah. Right. Because there's yeah. no longer just two channels. Yeah. So the audience has been sliced up into much smaller and smaller groups. Now, a great thing comes out of that slicing, which is instead of trying to make a film for everyone, make the you're just making a film for someone. What that means is the story you're telling and the characters you're telling can have a different view of the world. They yeah. don't need to make grandma happy and a child happy at the same time. Yeah. However, the flip side of that is often it costs just as much to make the film for this many people as for this many people. So yeah. now what you have to do is you have to find an audience that is more deeply in love with what you do so that, in fact, they will not just watch your cartoon. They will buy a T-shirt. They will buy a game. They will buy a comic book. They will buy a yeah. novel. Yeah. Not just because you want to sell them things, but because you want to be able to make the film in the best way possible. And you yeah. need all of those levels of success and love in order to actually make the next film. Yeah. So what do you think of NFTs then? Uh, because I find it really interesting because internet has made uh, like distribution very, very easy. So, but what NFTs does is that you can actually sell something that's valuable to the same audience so what do you think of NFTs? Well, like everyone else, when I saw the concept of the NFT and people succeeding with it, I wondered if it was a place for me. My instinct is, though, that it's not art, that it's what's called collectible. And I'll give you a metaphor in my business. In the 1990s, selling the artwork that made up cartoons became very successful. And people were spending more and more money on this artwork. And in fact, Hanna-Barbera, the company that I ran, had thrown away all of their original artwork over the years. So in order for us to sell anything, we had to recreate the artwork and sell new versions of the old artwork. Now, the thing that we had going for us is that the founders of our studio were still alive. They were in their 80s. Yeah. And they could actually sign the artwork, which made it, yes, it was new, but it now was unique because of these signatures. Exactly. Yeah. And the last year that I was at Hanna-Barbera, we paid Bill Hanna and Joe Barbera a million dollars each for their signatures. <laughs> and yeah. we were able to sell that artwork at very high prices, yeah, I mean, uh, $500, $1,000 for each piece. Yeah. You can now go on eBay. Wait a minute. You can now go on eBay and buy that $1,000 artwork for $100 because it wasn't art. It was a collectible. Yeah. It was a market frenzy that had bid up the price. Okay. But it wasn't an original piece of art. So it's worth a lot less money in the long yeah. run. Yeah. So my instinct about NFTs, number one, is that it's collectible yeah. rather than art. Yeah. It's a frenzy. It's tulips. Yeah. But okay. I have another thing, which is I have a young son who is a video game programmer. Yeah. He's a computer person. And when I called him and asked him about NFTs, he goes, I don't like them. I don't like NFTs. I don't like cryptocurrency. I said, okay, why not? 
He said, you know, they're really dangerous for the environment. And this is really a, a problem for me as a 23, 24-year-old. And I immediately lost interest in NFTs and in cryptocurrency because I'm 69 years old. My life is a diminishing resource. I'm getting older and older, closer and closer to my life being over. But my 23-year-old and my 25-year-old sons, their life is just beginning. And I need to look at life through their eyes, not through my eyes. Yeah. And so I've walked away from thinking about it one way or the other because of the current destruction it brings to our environment. Yeah. And while there are probably a lot of other things I do in life that are bringing destruction to the environment, I do my best when I hear about it to change my behavior. Yeah. So that's how I'm feeling about NFTs today. Okay. Okay. So, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I mean, optimization can happen in terms of like how much energy it consumes over a period of time. Well, when it Uh, changes, then I'll change my mind. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So, I mean, you've built a lot of businesses and businesses has its ups and downs. Sure. So can you share with me like one instance of like a really high point and a story of your like a really low point? Sure. I'll go back to my animation, the beginning of my animation career. As I said, when I got to Hanna-Barbera, they had not had a hit in 10 years. And so I brought in a program that brought them six very large, successful shows. Yeah. The Powerpuff Girls was probably the biggest around the world, right? Yeah. And I was hailed as someone who understood the future of animation. Yeah. So, you know, one of the problems that happens with that is you start to believe your own publicity. (laughs) And one of the things that was very successful in animation, is very successful in animation, is comedy. But the other category is called action-adventure. I personally have no interest in action adventure, but Hanna-Barbera owned a classic property called Johnny Quest, which had been a very successful action adventure show. And people were asking me every single day, you should revive Johnny Quest. It'll do great. So I made that decision and I committed the company to a giant program of Johnny Quest. Instead of making 13 episodes, I committed the company to 60 episodes. Instead of waiting to see whether it would work, I went out and I made toy deals around the world and I made distribution deals around the world before we had made one frame based on our success and the success, the historical success of Johnny Quest. Yeah. I hired two people at somebody else's advice that I didn't know to create the show. Yeah. They seemed like nice people. But I didn't put them through that process of figuring out whether they were the right people. Yeah. And as it turned out, they were the wrong people. And everything that came out about the show was terrible. But now I had committed my company. My company owned three television networks. I had committed each of those networks to running this show. I had committed our international networks to running the show. There was a lot of money committed and a lot of commitments to licensees. And the show was turning out terribly. Everything I tried to do to fix the show was the wrong decision. You know how in a sports game, when someone throws you the ball and you fumble it before you catch it, for the rest of the play, you're doing everything wrong because your game is off. Well, my game was off. Every decision I made was wrong. And everything about this was terrible. 
at one point, my company was for sale. My my the bigger company I was part of, Ted Turner's company. He was selling it to Time Warner. And when the due diligence was being done, my show by itself was such a problem that it could have scuttled the whole deal of selling all of Turner to Time Warner. Oh, God. <laughs> because there was $50 million at stake for this one thing. Needless to say, my boss wanted me fired. And needless yeah. to say, I wanted to quit. Yeah. So at that point, I had a new baby a new marriage. I was sleeping one hour a night and all the rest of the eight hours I was worrying and I never solved the problem. We finally released the show. It crawled. It didn't walk. It certainly did not run. And I thought my career was over. Luckily, one, the sale went through to Time Warner. Luckily, I didn't want to work for Time Warner anyway. I was thrilled to work for a crazy genius like Ted Turner. That was one of the most exciting things in my life. And luckily, what I had done with the Powerpuff Girls and the other successful shows had built my reputation in animation. And I was able to quietly resign and start my own company and go into business with Viacom to make cartoons over at Viacom. And most luckily at all, I'm an American where it's not shameful to have failed. In fact, most of us who have succeeded have failed many times on our way to success. And our culture allows for it. And I could basically take a shower and shower all the mud off of my face, put on my white shirt, my khaki pants, and go back to work. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, you're in your 60s now. And most people in the 60s, it's they retire. But you started another business. Yeah. Uh, It's kind of... Yeah. Why? Well, I mean, you know very well that it's really, really hard. (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, I think I told you that the lesson I got from working in my parents' pharmacy, even though it was a tiny, small business, was that in my DNA is I live to work. I don't live to play golf. I don't live to garden. I live to work. I like to work. Yeah. Now, My business has changed dramatically in that, first of all, there are very few totally independent producers in animation. Almost every producer works for a giant platform or network. So my business by its nature is pretty small and I'm comfortable in small business. The other thing is the business deals have changed. You know, the first show I made, The Fairly Odd Parents, as an independent, the way I was able to make a deal is that I get a royalty for every sale of the Fairly Odd Parents. And in fact, we just got new orders for two brand new series of the Fairly Odd Parents 20 years later. Yeah. And I participate in those deals. Those deals don't exist anymore. Now, when you sell a show to a Netflix or to an HBO Max, you're selling it for the world. They never resell it. And so whatever money you make, you make that day and you don't make any more. Yeah. That's what my business is. But, you know, I'm 69. I've already put my my sons through school. We've paid for all that. I don't have any of those expenses anymore. And now I can continue doing what I love to do, which is meeting new talented people and saying, can I help you? Yeah. And maybe it's smaller. Maybe I'll make a little less than I used to make. But, you know, I'm one lucky person. I've done really well for myself in life. Yeah. And I really like doing it. 
So why should I go and learn to play golf that I don't like to do when I can continue building on what it is that I know how to do that maybe I can do it a little bit better than I used to do it? Maybe there's a new creative person that I can meet in Australia like I did two weeks ago that is really special. Maybe I can help that person come out to the world and bring his vision to the world. Why do I need to stop doing that? I like it. Nice. I mean, <laughs> I, I also would like to have a life like this. Uh, where well, you get you, to do... the, the great thing about the world that we are living in is the only thing stopping you is the person in the mirror. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, one of the things, uh, I mean, Pop of Girls, Dexter's Lab, all those were like cartoons that I liked when I was growing up. So, But I also did like Johnny Quest. I don't know why it did not work. It was a great show. And yeah. I, by the way, for 20 years, they've been trying to figure out how to make a live action movie of Johnny Quest. Yeah. But I'm not that, the person. Johnny Quest will succeed again. It just isn't going to succeed with me. I'm the wrong person. Yeah. Look at what that studio has done with Scooby-Doo, a show that I also didn't understand. Yeah. And I never pursued Scooby-Doo like an idiot. I wasn't the right person. The thing about creative work is it's like a marriage right? Not every marriage works. It only works when the right two people are together. And it doesn't matter if that is, you know, I met my wife that I've been married to on a blind date 30 years ago. Yeah, It shouldn't have worked. None of my other blind dates ever worked. It worked. The chemistry was right. Yeah. And it's exactly the same thing in creative work, whether that creative work is technology, filmmaking, music making, lumber making. It doesn't matter what the business is. In a collaborative business, it is the chemistry of that collaboration that makes things possible. Okay. Yeah. I mean, this has been a really wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for thinking of me. And I hope that when we are both safely vaccinated and the world restrictions open up, that we get together in person for the first time, hopefully maybe in Los Angeles. Yes, I hope so. Thank you. We will. Hey everyone, hope you enjoyed this podcast episode with Fred. I think this is the best episode of Understanding VC till date. A couple of things I, that I really liked, uh, one was his framework for interviews where he would ask the same questions in the same order so that he could understand an individual better in relationship to him. That's a very interesting approach. And other was a story about his low point with the cartoon Johnny Quest. You will inevitably make bad decisions, face failures, but I think the key is to keep trying and just look at what Fred has been able to achieve after that. I think that should be an inspiration for anyone. If you like this podcast, please do subscribe at understandingvc.com and also leave us a review. Thank you.